Welcome to episode 12 of Stacey's Pop Culture Parlour. Joining me with a giant mug of tea. We're not sharing it because we're not that close just yet, but we'll see how we get on in like an hour and a half. Uh, joining me in the parlour today is the absolutely delightful Stephen Lacey, who I met at Thought Bubble, who does a podcast, and I stroked his beard, if I remember correctly. Did I? Was it you? It, it, somebody stroked my beard. Was that you? Probably. Pro- I've got a thing about beards on faces. Uh, well, I had a very mighty beard then. It is less mighty now. Oh, that saddens me. I hope you're uh, you like doing that in preparation for Thought Bubble this year when you're obviously going to have an even more epic beard. I intend to bring wildlife in my beard. <laughs> and just bits of food that you've like amassed over the months. Yeah. Well, frankly, I looked around Thought Bubble and I, there was like Michael George and there was David Wynne and then there was Jason Aaron. I'm looking at my beard and going, I, I just can't compete. How, how can anyone with a beard compete against Jason Aaron? Uh, do you know, I don't think I've met him or his beard. He's very bald on the top and he's incredibly big. It's like halfway down his chest. <laughs> it's like his, his hair just fell down to the bottom of his face. <laughs> I love it. Right. So just to explain to people who you are, because like, you know, I know you and like you a lot. You do a podcast, don't you? I, I do a, a couple of them because I've just gone and kicked life into a, a solo show I do. Um my sort of main podcast is a show called The Fantasticast, where myself and a friend of mine called Andrew, who also does shows his own we've got together and we're looking at the fantastic four from the very beginning of you know 1961 and stan and jack writing superhero comics for the first time ever mm-hmm. and we're looking at everything so we're covering the strange tales series with johnny storm as the lead character which is not very good and <laughs> and as whenever one of the team shows up in another book to give them a sales so we do that it's great fun we look at a month every couple of weeks and just have a lot of fun with that we have a lot of guests on um we have a your guest on david Wynn joined us a few months back oh lovely was, chappy 
Yeah, it was great to have him on. And then uh, occasionally, and it really is occasionally because there was a five-month gap between episodes recently, I do a show called The 20-Minute Long Box where, because I am a, a geek and... I have lots and lots of comics. I have a database with all my comics on, which has a lot of entries. So I use a randomizer to randomly pick out one comic, which I then recap and review. And I'd like to keep that nice and short to 20 minutes. And that's just come back. Um, so, yeah, uh, they're both findable on iTunes. And, yeah, that, that, those are the shows that I do. Oh, that 20-minute long box thing is quite exciting because uh, I've got so many old comics in boxes, although mine, mine are short boxes because I didn't think I'd... You know, when you, you know when you start yes. collecting and you think, I'm just going to read Captain America and Miss Marvel, and then you discover DC, and then you discover other things that aren't Marvel or DC, and then all of a sudden you've got, like, five long boxes, and you're thinking, shit, yeah, that was me. So all of mine are short boxes, and that, like, just getting upset that they aren't long boxes, taking up less room, but... It, it is great. Uh, that was one of the reasons why I did. I thought, I've got all these comics. The only time I ever really look at them is when, oh, I need to pull that out because there's a creator coming to a convention, I need that signed. Um, and, and just to sort of uh, almost to prove my point, the randomizer chose me for the next episode to do an issue of Peter David's Hulk from when he came back in 2005, which was uh, the issue it chose me is the second ever Hulk comic I ever bought. Because oh. he came back to the title and I'd heard Peter David plus Hulk equals, oh, it's amazing. So <laughs> I grabbed it. And also quite timely, obviously, is he's uh, with, with his current health issues, uh, hopefully. Mm-hmm talk a bit about what his writing has meant to me over the years in novels and comics and television. Oh, how lovely. I guess we should say in case there are people out there who haven't heard that Peter David suffered a, a stroke just after Christmas and quite a, a initially quite a debilitating one. With uh, he, he pretty much lost all his uh, control of his body, uh, unable to move, and he's, he's now walking about again, which is great. So lots and lots of best wishes for him. Indeed, I'm sending out all the good vibes. So I'm going to move on to like the big musical elephant in the room. Because I think you'll probably have as much to say about this as I do. I saw Les Mis over the weekend. I've not got much to say, but I've got a lot to sing. <laughs> We're not going to do that, are we? Because I haven't really got a very good singing voice. <laughs> Neither have I. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Go on then. What did you think about it? I've been a fan of Les Mis since I was about 12 or 13. And I'm now pushing 30. And it's... It, it felt like the film I've waited most of my life to see. Oh, that's good. I, th- th- mm, what's the best way to go about this? I'm going to start with my two niggles, and then I'm going to tote sing its praises. My first niggle is something that I've actually been kind of annoyed by in every incarnation. Because I've seen, I've seen the stage show. Well, put my teeth in. Try that again. I've seen the stage show twice. Uh, and then obviously the film and I've always had a massive problem right it's it's about French people set in the French revolution in France and they've all got cockney accents what why is why is that <laughs> yeah it's it's one of those I've never fully understood it because like to me it should either be French accents or a sort of generic you know the kind of accent that Marius has in it that's sort of vaguely English sounding but not any particular region yeah but then his lack of accent in that way is a denotion of class as much as anything true true so the, the, the poor and the lower class and the working class they have the stronger accents whereas Marius is from good breeding so he is bereft of accent true uh, that's a problem I've always had with Lesmies, though, just simply because I, I can't actually stand Cockney accents. I think they're one of the most annoying things I've ever heard in my life, next to a Scouse accent. So, <laughs> uh, okay. the, the other thing, the other problem I actually had 
with the film <laughs> that was entirely the film's fault is Sasha Baron Cohen and Helena Bonham Carter, who, like, to me, just felt like they'd wandered off the set of another film and into that one and just were totally like, the fuck? Like, I had no clue what they were doing there, what they were trying to do. I mean, neither of them have got particularly good voices, so you couldn't say that they were chosen for that. Sasha Baron Cohen's accent was all over the fucking place, but not in a, like... It, it was it wasn't ever one accent. He had about twelve and it just didn't make any sense to me. And Helena Bonham Carter, I don't think she acts anymore. I think she just turns up and behaves weirdly. Because she seems to play the same part in every film that I've seen her in of late. It's nuts. And I, I think I've just gone off her. So I don't want a mental queen of hearts in everything that you do. <laughs> it's not it's not what I'm looking for. But Um I thought Helena Bonham Carter was the weak link in the cast. She mm. had a big problem enunciating and there were so many during madame tenadier's verse of master of the house there are many great jokes and gags and yet they were all lost because she wasn't clearly saying the words whereas i i although visually i quite liked her especially at the end of the film when she's got the little dark glasses on but yeah i i was more a fan of sasha baron cohen i his accent I took that as it depends entirely on who he's speaking to. So when he's toadying up to the posh bloke at the start of Master of the House, he's the one putting on the fake French accent in the same way that someone might might overly do a, a posh British accent mm-hmm. to impress someone. And then we saw he's toadying up to Javert later on. He only really lets his real come out when he's uh, he's having a go at Eponine outside uh, Valjean's place. That's true. Uh, his one solo song was cut, which is a lovely song called Dog Eat Dog, but I understand why it was cut. It's a lesser song, but that's the point where he basically addresses the audience. There's no one else around, and you see his true colours come through. Mm-hmm. See, that might may have made it make more sense then, to be honest. I was I was a bit I was a bit baffled by that that casting of them pair. I just didn't I couldn't buy it at all. And Amanda Seyfried's fucking voice, holy shit, it is terrible. <laughs> I big, I've seen it twice. I had big problems with her the first time because mm. she was doing this sort of very petite vibrato and she wasn't letting any of her notes run long. So it felt like she was letting a note fall off before... Uh, who, who played Marius? Eddie something. Oh, Eddie Redmayne. Ed, Ed, Eddie Redmayne, yeah. Oh, yeah. Who was... Wow, he was good. He was good, wasn't he? Although I liked the other chappy, his like, friend whose name I can never remember to pronounce. <laughs> uh, some it, sort it, of it, French it, name beginning with E. <laughs> In Jolras, um, played by a Norwegian bloke whose name I cannot remember for the life of me. He was good. I liked him. He was. Um, but yeah, Marius really took me away because uh, the the most recent production I've seen over and over and over was the one at the O2 for the 25th anniversary where Nick Jonas stepped up to the mic and he opened his mouth and he failed completely. <laughs> do anything interesting or powerful with the role the oh point that when Michael Ball turns up later on in the show when the original cast comes out and he, they do one, one day more and he gets that line my place is here I fight with you he gets a standing ovation in the middle of the song whilst in, when Jones was doing it most of the ones are going what was that <laughs> speak up speak up would you oh dear I've got to say though like I'm making it sound like I didn't enjoy this film at all but um, I actually thought it was amazed tits and um, Anne Hathaway like if she doesn't get an Oscar for that she's been kind of robbed because I was like close to weeping at um, I Dreamed a Dream like I can't I couldn't even look like just looking at her made me upset 
<laughs> I thought that's really sad. But at the same time, that's really powerful filmmaking and acting if I'm genuinely, you know, unhappy to look at someone. <laughs> Especially somebody as beautiful as her. That's ridiculous. It was it was a phenomenal performance. And I, I, I've got friends who've been seeing, they said, whoa, it was so boring with all those close-ups all the time. It's like, you, you've missed the point of that entirely. Yeah. This isn't an Oliver film where you've got a cast of thousands dancing in unison. This is not a song and dance musical. This is a song, this is a musical where the most powerful moments are these amazing solos. And if the camera moved away from that, you just you'd lose that connection straight away. I thought that was a. I watched um, an interview with uh, Anne Hathaway the other day on um, the Daily Show with John Stewart, and um, and he was asking her about that scene, and she said, "Oh, she said we did it for about eight hours over and over." She said because I was I was adamant that I could get more and more out of it. She said, and it, it came to the point where because you know in that scene she's just had her first like experience as a prostitute and yeah. In the film, she's in a coffin for some reason. I don't, I don't know why. And she said that they did one take of it entirely lying down in the coffin, and uh, and she said like by the end of that one, I was just thinking this is getting a bit ridiculous. And then it turns out they put the fourth take in there anyway. <laughs> it's just like eight hours sitting in this coffin singing that same song over and over again, crying on command, and he used the fourth take. <laughs> oh, <laughs> it's hard being an actress. And I thought that the girl who played Eponine, Samantha Barks, mm-hmm. was phenomenal. Oh, she was sickeningly good. <laughs> Are you aware of her, how she's got to be where she's where she is? Well, I'd heard that she has been in this age show, because the kid who played Gavroche had as well, wasn't hadn't he? Um, yeah, and, and, and the young girl who played Cosette then went on to be in the stage show as a result oh. of being in the film. Yeah, <laughs> which is quite cool. But uh, Samantha Park, she was on I Do Anything. She was a Nancy, and she oh, didn't really? win that. She she came third, I think, and then she. But she was good enough that she managed to make a career in musical theatre. She did the 2010 touring production Celebrate 25 Years, and she was Eponine at the O2. Ah. But the most awesome story about her is how she found out she got the role because she auditioned and there were people like Taylor Swift and Scarlett Johansson had also auditioned for it. And she was touring in Oliver as Nancy. And uh, one night in Manchester, they're doing the curtain call. And at the end of the curtain call, the curtain doesn't come down. And Cameron McIntosh walks out on stage and announces to, the, in, to a packed house uh, that she's just got the part as Eponine. Oh, wow. God, I bet that Which, was amazing. Yeah. That that's that's better than a phone call from the agent, isn't it? <laughs> quite a lot better. Quite a lot better. She was amazing. Like, um, on my own is one of my favourite like songs from yeah. a musical ever. Anyway, I think I mentioned to you and uh, Jenny on Facebook the other day that I sang on my own as a as an exam at school. All right. Uh, in the music exam simply because it was like you can either do a song like a vocal performance because it was performing arts we had to do it wasn't just music so you can either do a vocal performance or a dance and I don't know if you've ever seen me but I'm particularly uncoordinated and my style of dancing is much like Chandler from Friends so so I thought I have a passable voice maybe I can just about do this Uh, and I don't know why I picked that song because I couldn't even slightly do it justice but I got an A so you know (laughs) Maybe I did it all right, I guess. And you're doing yourself down. I've seen you dance. Dance floor <laughs> and thought bubble. I don't think that counts. I think that was more sort of sporadic octopus impressions. It was fun, though, so I don't really care. But, yeah, going back to the film, um, amazing. 
And, uh, and do you know what, Roy? I'm going to back up Russell Crowe a bit here. I didn't think he was as bad as everybody was making out because I'd heard beforehand that he was, like, genuinely awful. But I don't think I thought he was okay. I, I kind of liked him. His, his voice wasn't as polished as a lot of the other people's, but, you know, both of the... The, the big standout moments. Well, there's three of them, I guess. There's there's the duel moment where I where he's he's singing at Javert, at Valjean and Valjean singing back, and they're having a sword fight at the same time. He did. He was superb at that. Yeah, he was really good. And then he gets his his song stars, and then spoilers, his suicide. Yeah, it was one of the that. how terrible am I? It, it's one of my favourite moments in the musical, and uh, if I'm seeing. I saw it in the West End last year and I didn't get on with the Javert. He just did nothing to make me really care about him. So when he died, it was like, well, at least I won't hear him again. Whereas in this, it, you you felt every, every single bit of conflict within him. I actually found as well that his voice kind of went with how I perceived the character because he is very much a man of like sort of sticking to the rules and, and seeing things through. And his his voice was very sort of, it wasn't flowery, it didn't fart about, it just did what it needed to do. He sang the notes he needed to sing. Yeah. And it seemed very regimented like Javert is. I don't know if that was just me reading too much into it and he just had a bad voice and I was making excuses, I don't know. <laughs> I enjoyed it, so it was fine. But I did find it quite funny that, like, of the sort of super main characters in it, um, he is the only one who's, like, in a band and he probably had maybe the second to worst voice, <laughs> Amanda Seyfried's being the worst. <laughs> I don't know whether maybe I need to see it again, though maybe she'll annoy me less. But it just, her voice seemed really high-pitched as well. I don't know if what? it's just me misremembering the songs, because I, I, like I haven't seen it for a very long time. If I remember correctly, it, you, you've, you need to be a soprano to do cassette. Mm-hmm. But I, I've seen and listened to various soundtracks where there's a soprano with an incredible amount of power behind the voice. But she just didn't seem to have anything. It was all... It's a bit whiny. Twee. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, oh, man, I'm, I've never been a fan of vibrato either, and it really does my head in. That's a really sort of uh, pretentious thing to say, but I don't care. <laughs> It's your parlour, your rules. Exactly, I'll be as pretentious as I like, consonant. Yeah, no, I thought it was really good. I mean, like, it goes without saying that Hugh Jackman was really good. Although I was Mm. largely confused by his accent at times, but then Rich reminded me that his singing accent is probably more Australian than anything else. And I was like, I really noticed it the second time I saw it when he does his first soliloquy after the the bishop gives him all his jewellery. It was like, wow. Yeah, that's an interesting act. That's almost almost Irish. Yeah, that's what I thought. And then Rich said to me, you're probably forgetting that when somebody sings, they tend to sing either in a sort of faux English accent or a faux American accent or their own accent. that's what they'll have heard, yeah. Yeah, or their own accent. And he was like, his accent is Australian, so he's probably having a bit of a struggle, really, to sound not Australian, which... The only thing I could sort of rationalise it was saying, well, the Valjean we see here is is he's at the bottom. He's broken and on the edges of despair. Every time we see him since, he's healthy in mind, healthy in body. And maybe they wanted that to come across more in the voice. That's the only way I could, I, I was sort of rationalising it in my head. Yeah. When he dies at the end, spoilers, huh? Um, that was pretty sad too. I got I got quite, quite emotional oh, in several I l- I loved how they handled that because the the bishop was played by uh, Colm Wilkinson, mm-hmm. who was the original Valjean. 
okay. he originated the role on, on the West End and on Broadway. He reprised it for the 10th anniversary concert when he, he turned up at the 25th anniversary in the encores to sing Bring Him Home with the other Valjeans and just, yeah, there's a if you're a Les Mis fan and you know the history of the show, there's just such a tremendous amount of warmth and affection. So then to have him come out to sing the last solo lines of the musical with Hugh Jackman, when he's sort of embodying God taking Valjean into his presence, it was just such a wonderful moment and tip of the hat to long-term fans. I absolutely loved that. Wow. I didn't know any of this. I'm such a terrible fan. It's almost stupid. But... The, the original Eponine was one of the whores. <laughs> Which basically, she needs a better agent. So, so he, he, he gets to be the bishop and the big pivotal point is, I get to be a whore. <laughs> I get to be a common Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Cameron. <laughs> Lovely. I really enjoyed it, though, and no doubt I'll probably end up seeing it again at some point in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, I'll be interested to see uh, if they... There was some no again. I know the musical like Inside Out. There were some noticeable line cuts, and I'm wondering if there'll be an extended edition on DVD where they they let some of the songs have their verses back and things like that. Because mm. it was two and a half hours long, and the stage show runs just well over three. I thought there must have been some bits cut out because, like I say, it's been a long time since I've seen it on the stage. And I said to Rich, like, because he had a look on um, on Wikipedia and he was like, well, if there are songs, were there more than 50 songs in the stage show? And I was like, I don't know, probably. Because <laughs> it listed it as having about 50 in the film. Yeah. And I was like, yeah, that sounds about right, I guess. But obviously I'm completely wrong. <laughs> the, the, the two main ones that were missing were Dog Eat Dog, which is Tanadier's vicious solo after the uh, after the battle's over. And there's a song called Turning, where all the women of Paris sing about the, these young boys who have gone out and died. You get a very brief snippet of that in the film, but it's, it's basically it's there in the musical to cover the fact that they're dismantling the barricades backstage and getting the next set of sets ready. <laughs> That's it's pretty sneaky. The song has shrunk over the 25 years. They've got better at doing it. <laughs> Sneaky. Do you want to move it on to something else before we end up just doing a whole show about... Uh... OK, well, as we're uh, as we're talking about films with music in, I thought I'd uh, take a couple of moments and talk about the music that I selected to open the show with. Uh, and that song uh, is a wonderful song by an artist called Rodriguez, and it's called Sugar Man. And it's from the soundtrack to possibly the most amazing documentary I've seen in about a year and a half called Searching for Sugar Man. And it, it, it's up for the best uh, documentary Oscar. I think it won the best documentary BAFTA um, when the BAFTAs were a couple of weeks ago or last week or whenever they were. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but it, it's just this phenomenal documentary. Uh, the, the story behind it is um, in the early 70s, two record producers who had been uh, they'd worked with Motown and worked with them, all the names of the 60s and the 70s or well, not the 70s they were just starting but anyway they were in Detroit and they went to see this guy play live and it, they, they talk about this, this mythological journey through you know, the, the fogs coming off the river so it's this dank misky night outside and then they go inside and the place is full of cigarette smoke so you exchange your cold mist for a warm mist and then the guy's there on stage in shadow facing away from the audience singing and he was just amazing. And he did two albums in the early 70s that you know, all the record companies and the producers were saying, this, this, this guy's better than Dylan. This guy's, his lyrics are up there with Dylan and possibly better. And the album sold absolutely nothing. Oh. Didn't sell a thing. Complete and utter failure. So he's dropped by his record company and that's it. He goes back to working on building sites and stuff. 
Except that a few years later, a bootleg of one of his albums makes its way into South Africa, which is on in the middle of apartheid, has all these trade sanctions and stuff, and strikes a chord in South Africa and becomes, over the next sort of, uh, I guess, 15 to 20 years, one of the pivotal albums in South Africa. It's, you know, in the movie, it, it's talked about sitting on the shelves next to Sergeant Pepper and Bridge Over Troubled Water. And nobody knows anything about him because of all the things that prevent South Africa from interacting with the outside world. All they know is that here's the, there's this guy and the rumour builds up that Rodriguez killed himself on stage. And there's two versions of it. One is he reaches the end of a bad gig, pulls a gun out of his pocket and blows his head off. Or the other is he covers himself in petrol and sets fire to himself on mm. stage in front of his fans. So come the mid-90s, this music journalist, he, as apartheid's come down, he's going, I need an idea for an article. He's got this note, how did Rodriguez die? So he goes off and he, he, he tracks down, he, he follows the money and well, when all the royalties from his South African sales, where did they go to reach his various dead ends, dead ends and stuff, finally gets hold of the producer of his first album and interviews him, talks to him and says, so how did Rodriguez die? And the producer says, he, he didn't. At which point the film then becomes this amazing journey of discovery, not only for these South African fans who discover their musical idol, And the scale of it is much as if you were a big Elvis fan and suddenly found that actually he's alive. Oh, wow. Lived on the other side of the world. But also when Rodriguez realises his impact in South Africa and that he's huge and he he goes over and plays these concerts there. And it's amazing. It's a a completely true story. It wouldn't be a documentary if it wasn't. And it's just... (laughs) the way it lays it all out and the way it handles the story and the way it ties you up in the, the emotionality of the story is phenomenal and yeah that sounds so amazing I saw it a couple of weeks ago at the Prince Charles Cinema in London and uh, although it's been out for a little while now and I think it's on DVD so you know pop down to your local HMV whilst there still is one and, and <laughs> stap it up it, it's a phenomenal film I can't recommend it enough and I hope you enjoyed the song that it came in on because there's some really good songs on that album Cool. I um, I haven't listened to the song yet, but like obviously by the time the episode comes out, I will. So I might just like edit in a bit where I go, yeah, that was great, that was. Or uh, what are you talking about, mate? That was shit. And just uh, seamlessly editing. <laughs> <laughs> or not, you know, or I could leave it. And uh, and you can all sit there wondering whether or not I enjoyed it. Mm. And that sounds like an amazing documentary, though. I might have to check that out. I love stories like that where you find out just like bonkers stuff because that's that's insane that they all thought he was dead yeah it's just one of those urban legends it's the pre-internet age you know he was completely obscure in america so no one's american knew anything about it. so it wasn't like they could pick up a copy of rolling stone and go oh yeah there's this article about rodriguez it's just that the way the world was back then could allow some guy to be absolutely massive in a country and not know about it and that country needs to know nothing about him that's insane you, you couldn't comprehend that now with you know the way that information rolls around everywhere all the time Mm. that's madness i am going to broach the topic uh that's been a big point of contention on the internet's full of nerds uh, and talk a bit about the recent happenings in spider-man's life okay uh or should i say death (laughs) strokes beard by the way guys i'm going to spoil the shit out of this (laughs) just as fair warning so there was like a massive brouhaha not long ago. Like I think Dan Slot had death threats. He did storyline. So to just give a, a basic premise to people who don't read Spider-Man and therefore don't care if I spoil the crap out of it. Long story short is that Doctor Octopus was dying 
and uh, he set up this elaborate scheme so that when he was on his deathbed, he could transfer his consciousness into Spider-Man and then Peter Parker's into his dying body so that Peter would die inside Dr. Octopus and Dr. Octopus would be Spider-Man. And um, I've got to say, like, uh, I have this... I wouldn't say spoiled because I actually asked Rich what all the bloody brouhaha on Twitter was about. Um, so Rich told me before I read it what was going to happen, and uh, and I thought it was really really good. Like I don't I don't quite understand why people go so mental over stuff like this because as much as I would actually really like this to be a permanent thing because I think it's a really interesting direction to take the character in. There's no way it's going to be permanent. So calm the fuck down. <laughs> In fact, it sort of swung the other way, hasn't it? Because they, they were, Dan Slott was, you know, protesting for ages, you know, this is a permanent thing, it's not going to change back, it's not going to change back, and then the end of Superior, number one. Yeah, number one, like, that. that is the one thing about this that I don't think has been very well done, because I liked the way that they managed to do it so that Peter didn't realise until it was too late. Yeah, what Otto was doing. Um, and I liked I, I, I liked the way they managed to convince Otto to be a good person as Spider Man because I was really worried that that was going to be over far too quickly and there'd be no real reason for Otto to be good. It, it's it sold very very well. If anything, I could have done with more pages of that yeah. of Peter's memories suddenly flushing through into Doc Ock because. That it was a great emotional moment, a bit like earlier in that issue when Peter was in the afterlife, and the first person he meets is the boy who collected Spider-Man. Oh my god, that was so like yeah, actually it's... sad. Like I haven't been that sad reading a comic since I read the issue where um, Ted Cord's Blue Beetle died, <laughs> and I actually had a little cry at that. I don't tell anyone. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I can be more recent with that. Actually, it's the last time a Spider-Man died. Because I was a massive Ultimate Spider, I still am a massive Ultimate Spider-Man fan, and Peter Parker's exit from that book and the aftermath of that absolutely tore me up. Was it really sad? Because I um I don't read the Ultimate stuff because to be honest, like a boy, I get far too much as it is, and I can't really keep up with reading it and paying for it. So I don't yeah. read any of the Ultimate. <laughs> stuff. Recently, I read um there was a mini series called Spider Men. I don't know if you read that. Yeah, um, that was not so good. See, I quite liked it, but I didn't know if that was because I don't know anything about the Ultimates universe and how they would have dealt with Peter appearing there after he died. The funniest bit was when Nick Fury found out that his 616 counterpart was white. <laughs> yeah. And he's just like, oh, well, he's lost. Because <laughs> um, no, um, this isn't the first time a Spider-Man's died. It was only a year and a half ago that there was a big thing about Peter Parker dying in the Ultimate Universe. And basically, he had a Spider-Man level fight, which was he went up against the Sinister Six, except he happened to have been, taken a bullet through his gut from a, a Ultimates versus Ultimates fight. So it, it takes place in his neighbourhood. And it, it's real desperate last-minute stuff because uh, he, he's got a sporting cast that includes Iceman and the Human Torch and they're taken off the table before Peter gets there and it's him versus the Goblin at the very end of it and he, he manages to save Mary Jane because, you know, he's Spider-Man he manages to save his aunt, he saves Gwen cause he, and then uh, Norman Osborn is thrown into a, a, a nearby truck and the truck explodes and Peter's caught in the blast and he dies in Aunt May's arms his last words are basically I couldn't save Uncle Ben but I managed to save you and then he died and it, that's... Yeah, it, it's awful and in a really good way. This is Bendis writing superbly well, and there was a variant cover that even made me cry. 
seriously. It was it's the aftermath of the battle and everything. You can just see a body on the floor, but the main thing is there's this bright glowing light in the middle of the page, and Spider-Man's walking into the light, and Uncle Ben's just got his arm around him, leading him off to his uh, to the afterlife. And it was it's one of the saddest images I've ever seen. But that was that Spider-Man. <laughs> that was one Spider-Man. Who I will am... stay dead. Yeah, I do think they've rushed it a little bit with um with Superior Spider-Man. I would have quite liked to see a couple of a couple more issues where Otto doesn't seem to have full control and he can't quite figure out why, and then it's revealed to us as readers that oh Peter Parker's still in there somewhere. Yeah, like um, that's the kind of twist that should come a year into it. Even six months, like give it six issues. The other thing I wasn't keen on as well, because I thought the whole lead up to it was handled really well. And if I hadn't already known what was coming, the whole misdirection of like that sort of massive world level Dr. Octopus threat, I would never have seen this coming. And that's what I liked the most about it. But then this, I mean, I think they've too quickly, they've already hinted that Peter will be back. And much too quickly, they've thrown Spider-Man into other issues with other characters who should have noticed that he's not peter anymore uh for example daredevil he is one of him and peter are stupidly close and if there was going to be anybody who was going to notice who wasn't psychic um or no what, what word am i looking for telepathic there we go that's it yeah i know what i meant if there's going to be one character who's not a telepath who's going to know that that's not peter parker it's going to be daredevil so i find it really weird that immediately they threw him in a situation together because it I don't know. It just seems like you're putting all your eggs out there really quickly. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. I don't know. Well, uh, Matt knew that something was off in that issue because it, it was only last week's issue as we were recording. And he, he knew that something wasn't right. But they're not as close as they've been in the past because of the whole one day, not one day more. <laughs> that's lame is again. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> Yeah, they're standing on the top of the building, flying giant flags around. <laughs> I would love to hear the hero sing, sing the song. Anyway, um, <laughs> but yeah, uh, so I think they, they still know each other's identities, but there's a lot of the personal connections have been magically erased by Joey Q and his magic marker of magic whiteboard marker. See, things. I'm not I'm not very up on that because I gave up with Spidey and all the Spidey related titles after brand new day or one more day whatever it was called and yeah. um and i only like i pretty much came back i think it was about 12 no maybe about 15 issues before 700 <laughs> so <laughs> i've not been back with spidey very long to be honest which is a shame because okay. i really like spider-man and um he's one of my favorite characters but i just i, I just didn't like not so much the idea of the whole reset, even though that is a bit sort of cheap and tacky, but it was the way it was handled because I don't think, I don't think Peter, because in that bit, I mean, this is old now, so I don't mind spoiling the crap out of it. In those issues, he basically gave up his marriage to Mary Jane to uh, save Aunt May, but Aunt May had visited him from the afterlife and said, I'm really happy here, I'm back with Ben, please don't take that away from me, stay with your wife. And he still chose to not stay with his wife, which makes so little sense on a Peter Parker level. Uh, it was then shown that he didn't make the ultimate choice at the end, it was Mary Jane. She's the one who forced uh, the issue at the very end. Okay. Yeah. Because I didn't pay much attention. Like after that, I was just like, nah, don't 
don't like it anymore. Just stopped. Mm. <laughs> Plus, it went to being like four issues a month or whatever it was, and I was like, "Shit, the bed, man." How much which which is a a thing I have with I've I've, I've had to st- I stopped buying Iron Man because I just can't add that many bi-weekly titles mm. to my list. Although I was really enjoying it, but we're not talking about Iron Man. We're talking about the Superior Spider Man. I really enjoyed Superior Number One. The 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 ending aside. Yeah, I thought that, it was if that, great. If that last page had just been gone, I'd have been really happy with that first issue. I um, loved the uh, the crappy Sinister Six. I, my favourite panel in the whole book was when the living brain went out of control and it was just sort of flailing its arms down the corridor. It was going, why did my master build me with the ability to feel pain? It was just so <laughs> pathetic. I, I, I couldn't stop laughing at that. that. That's like a Futurama level joke. That's how brilliant it was. I thought it was, I thought it was a really well-written issue up until that last page. That last page just sort of... Uh... I don't know. It just it just came a bit too soon. I could have done with a lot more build up for this. Yeah, I mean, I've got it open in front of me, and when he goes, I don't know how, but I'm still in the fight. I am Peter Parker, and I swear I will find a way back. Yeah, it's then, um. Wait, wait, hold on. He's he's a ghostly person, half inhabiting a body. He's looking for find a way home. <laughs> Isn't that quantum leap? <laughs> Quite possibly. Um. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm I'm going to keep going with it because I do like Otto as Spider-Man. It's quite funny how he has to keep remembering that he's supposed to be Peter Parker and he's like, oh, shit, yes. I'm going to make a joke. Uh, <laughs> he's like, he keeps saying things that are just completely un-Peter Parker-y, which really make me laugh. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to keep going with it for that. But I, I just don't know if they've... Um, if they've sold the farm a bit early on uh, on the whole Peter returning thing, unless they're going to do like a whole 180 and he's going to try and fight his way back, but Otto's going to be like, get out of my face, bitch, and do some sort of like Peter Parker exorcism and he will be gone forever. <laughs> but, you know. It, it, whilst that could be quite fun, that's effectively what he did with 700. That's which true. was Peter Parker's on his last thing. He's desperate to go way back. And the, the Octopot goes, think, and then Doctor goes, yeah, I put armour on the headpiece you're screwed mate yeah uh, I just uh, I just think things like that they kind of negate the emotional reaction that you incited from the original thing that you did yeah um, which is why on the one hand although I'm stupidly upset that Ted Cord doesn't exist anymore I'm very happy he hasn't been brought back in one of these oh he wasn't dead dead um, type I mean like I don't know if you've been reading I want to say it's New Avengers but there's so many fucking Avengers titles I do not know which one it's from I uh, I gave up on the Avengers titles after Secret Invasion okay there was spoilers a recent issue where um, they travel to a microverse in um, oh the Wasp returning there you go yeah yes it, I have read those god they were awful fucking like it was terrible anyway when she turns around and goes when everyone's really stunned she goes oh you guys thought I was dead no silly this is what really happened don't like, what? Daft. of course I shrank into a microverse fuck off right that's just I mean I've never been a massive Wasp fan so it wasn't like I was devastated when she died but a lot of people kind of were and now it's just like sort of shitting in their faces <laughs> it's like if you're going to kill a character off and want to, it to have emotional resonance and you want me to care you've really got to kill them off <laughs> yeah I mean there, there's that thing about uh, comic book deaths which is you know such a cliche but it is ridiculous uh, 
they killed it in 52. They obviously Sue Dimney had been dead for some time from identity crisis, but they uh, killed off Ralph Dimney as well, the elongated man. And he had a, he had a pretty decent death. It was shocking. It was a victory. It was a moment that validated him as a character. It was superb. Yet at the very end of the series, they showed that Ralph and Sue now existed as ghosts. And the, the, I think the conceit was that they were going to be detective ghosts. And then they were never seen again. It's like, why, why, why bring them back to do nothing with them? That makes perfect sense. What are you talking about? Yeah. Oh, I don't know what goes through. I, I do wonder sometimes whether it's just that a writer says to an editor, I really want to write this character, but they happen to be dead. Can I undead them? And they go, yeah, whatevs. Uh, and then you end up with things like the wasp returning and for some reason rubbing herself on the grass of Central Park. Ooh, hello. Sometimes that approach can pay dividends completely. When Kevin Smith brought back Green Arrow Ooh, in yeah. the late 90s with the Quiver story, that's still one of my favourite superhero stories ever. And it's become even better now that I've read this, the the Green Arrow stuff where he's travelling with Hal Jordan. Every word that comes out of his mouth is some sort of ridiculously over-the-top lecture about liberalism. <laughs> Like, so somebody says, hello there, pal. Uh, good morning, pal. And goes, it can't be good morning when you're sucking on that stick that gives cancer to the children of our nation. It's like, dude, chill out and just say hey. Would you? <laughs> it, it, so it's even funny to me now. But that worked. But uh, when I think about all these times in the 90s when people say, I want to write this character, but they don't. And they're effectively told, no, but take the concept and do something new with it and you end up with all these great legacy characters that had then had an extra generation added to them uh, things like the, the robot hour man from Grant morrison's justice league was a superb character he had his own series for a bit and obviously what happened with starman oh starman does he love starman yeah but yeah the, the whole like the whole like comic book death thing to me it's okay to bring characters back if a you're not going to do it to every character that dies and B, you're going to do it really well. Like, I mean, I don't know about, I don't know whether you were reading both the Batman and the Captain America titles where Bruce Wayne and Steve Rogers air quotes died. Yes. Because it happened basically at the same time and pretty much the same thing happened in that they hadn't been killed. They'd been displaced in time and just basically had to find their way back to now. That to me was just both of those stories were garbage and I really didn't like either of them, which really upset me because Captain America is what got me into comics in the first place. Um, I, and... I really liked how they dealt with the death of Captain America and what happened in his absence. Yeah. I thought his return was pants. His, I, yeah, his I... return was terrible. And I liked I liked Bucky as Cap yeah. as well. Like The whole ha- ha- soldier thing was really good. Whereas uh, with the Grant Morrison thing, I thought there were some good stories with uh, with Dick as Batman, mm-hmm. but it was it was really the return of Batman that was great because he was he just went completely out there, and, and that series where he's jumping through time in different location each issue with a different artist was it was superb. Oh, see, I hated that. Oh, okay. <laughs> the the return of Bruce Wayne stuff. Yeah. Oh, I really disliked that. The um, the awful uh, series involving Booster Golden, Superman, and Hal Jordan that somehow was tied into it but wasn't at all. That was pretty crap. But I I I quite enjoyed him going through time. Yeah. Any excuse for some Fraser Irving Batman? I just don't think I uh, I don't really gel with Grant Morrison to be honest. There's been a lot of things that he's written that I just don't get. <laughs> I've I've. I've been less enamoured with this stuff over the past year and a half. I thought his new 52 stuff just isn't... I was really 
I was going to drop action comics, and then a couple of months ago, he he started this this war of the fifth dimension thing, and suddenly everything clicked. It was like, oh, this is what reading Grant Morrison when he was writing The Invisibles or something must have been like when you were reading it month by month. Mm-hmm. And you can see there's this framework, but you can barely barely perceive it, but you know it's all tying together. And each issue just shows you a little bit more. And yeah, so now Action Comics is really good because he's writing like Grant Morrison rather than this person who, God knows what he's been doing for the last year. And Happy's really good. Happy's excellent. Is that the one with the rabbit? Yeah, with uh, Derek Robson on art where he sees the little, uh, little, I think it's a horse. Um, oh, is it a horse? I stopped yeah. reading that. I actually stopped oh, it, reading that. I it, found it's it only The third issue, you you really understood pretty much everything. Uh, one, one, see, one, I only read one and two. Uh, <laughs> no, the, the end of the third issue, it, it ties so many things together, but without finishing off. And I'm really looking forward to the fourth issue. I think it's out this week. So, yeah, Amazing Spider-Man. Uh, oh, yeah. I quite, quite, quite liked that. it. Calm down, internet. <laughs> that's, that's a summary of what I was trying to say about that there, in case uh, we wandered off topic a bit too far, <laughs> which, yeah, which we may have done. Um, I'm going to hand it back over to you, my friend. Okay. Well, as we've talked about Amazing and Superior... I thought it would be as we're, what, two, two and a half to three months into Marvel now, just to back back and forth with anything Marvel now-ish that we're reading and what we've liked, what we haven't liked. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, what have I read? Uh, Thunderbolts. The Daniel Way, Steve Dillon series. Yeah, I like that a lot, but I'm a massive Deadpool groupie, so... Uh, uh. Uh, yeah, I um, I think I talked about this last episode. I, uh, I'm pretty much obsessed with Deadpool. I'm pretty much obsessed with the way that Daniel Wayne writes Deadpool. My biggest problem with that comic is that I really don't get along with Steve Dillon's art, <laughs> which is a terrible thing to say. But I can understand why he was chosen, because I think his style of art is not pretty, and this isn't a, this isn't a comic that's going to be pretty. This is a comic that's going to be like gory and a bit fucked up. So I can see why they went with him. It's just that I'm not a fan. And the two have a history of working together as well. They launched yeah. the the awful Wolverine Origin series Oof. together, mm-hmm. which I still haven't actually forgiven Daniel Way for. It. It's everything I read of is just coloured by the fact that you took fifty issues to tell a story that meant nothing. I am. Um, I like to pretend that he never wrote that and that it didn't happen and that I never read it. <laughs> I'll be honest. The moment I saw Daniel Way, it was like, yeah, I'm not even going to, you know, burn steel it as they as they say. Ooh. which is when you read it in the comic shop but it's like I, I just I don't want I think the thing that, that sort of made me want to go for it is that I like the idea of Deadpool trying to work as part of a team even if that team is a team of sort of mentals um, <laughs> plus I'm quite a big Punisher fan so I was intrigued by that that element of it as well um, I really enjoyed I think I've read the first either two or three issues however many that have actually been out so far um, and, yeah. uh, and I've I've really enjoyed them. Could could be a bit more Deadpool for my liking, but I'm not going to argue too much because I think I'm just a bit sad that uh that the the Deadpool comics that Daniel Way was doing have ended because although I like the one that um Brian Persane was doing or is doing, uh, it's just not the same. It's just not the same. It makes me sad. <laughs> um, one of the titles I've really been enjoying, I picked it up. On the Friday, just before Thought Bubble, I picked up on a whim off the shelf, going, oh, I can read that on the train. If it's crap and I don't like it, I'll get Jason Aaron and Ata Ribic to sign it and I'll flog it on eBay. And it was, <laughs> or God of Thunder. 
and I read it on the train and it was really weird reading stuff on the train going up to London because I was at, at one of the seats with a table so there was someone sitting opposite me and behind that person was Kieran Gillen and <laughs> on the other side of the aisle was Jamie McKelvey. Nice. And it was like, oh, just they're slightly too far away to chat to. But I kind of know them. I've seen them around enough times. That they know I exist. I know they exist. There's like, it's like everything I read is like they can be looking up and making judgment calls. But it was a, it was a bloody good comic. I, I'm a, I'm a sucker for a story that's told in multiple time zones, and this one seems to do it really well. Each issue has enough advancement in each three of the different time zones that you never feel like one of them's being forgotten or is less of a priority. And I'm. I'm really keen to see where it's going. And it's a Rimmage's art. Oh, I love it's, him. Sometimes he can be a bit chunky and blocky, but it works really well for, for gods. It's quite yeah, grand, his, uh, yeah. his style of artwork, I think. And it was amazing. I was, when I was queuing for Charlie Adlard at Thought Bubble, I was next to his desk and I was watching him do a, a Daredevil painting. And he did it. He, he, I think he basically sketched out the very basics of an outline, like the arm goes here kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And then everything was done with paint straight off. And it's like the balls of that guy to have the confidence to just paint like that and not Kind of up. amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it was quite awesome. I, um, I haven't read that, but that is on my pile of things to read. Uh, I think Rich quite likes Thor stuff, so he's probably picked it up for himself. And I just tend to leaf through and read what I want to read from what he's getting. <laughs> That's that's what I'm going to check out because I want to be more into Thor, if that makes sense. Like, I've never read a, a Thor on his own title, but I like him in the Avengers and other things that he pops up in, so I feel like I probably should read one. When I when I came into comics after about a year of me buying comics, they killed Thor off when Avengers Disassembled happened. And that was it. He was gone for like three or four years, which was an incredibly ballsy move by Marvel to take one of their big guns off the table and then keep him off the table. And I, I bought the JMS stuff when he came back, and I, I bought the Kieran Gillen stuff, which was fantastic, and that informs a lot of what's happening to Journey into Mystery, and I think that's as essential a read as Journey into Mystery. Um, I, I just didn't click with the Matt Fraction stuff at all, which was a shame, because it should have been great, but it wasn't. It's a shame when things should be great and they're not, is it? Yeah, well, it didn't help that it was the it was very similar to the Matt Fraction who wrote Fear itself, which is not good. I could do it. I yeah, uh, I won't get into it, but I wasn't a fan. And we've got a different Matt Fraction now who's writing amazing books like Hawkeye and FF. Do you know I love Hawkeye? That's awesome. That is. Where, where has that title come from? That title no should idea. be that title should have been cancelled by now. And it's got such cracking covers. It's the covers to that book. It's phenomenal. I love the the really limited colour palette. And I love the fact that you can open up the book uh, to a double-page spread. And there's something like 30-odd panels on the page. And, yeah, it, it's phenomenal. Uh, I really wish that DC could cr- put creative teams together like that and create a book like that on their own. But it does seem, yeah... I won't get into that. But it, it's very much a book that you, you sums up where Marvel is at the moment creatively. I tell you what DC need to do is they need to just stop it with Green Lanterns now. Like, I don't I don't know if you're reading many of the Green Lantern titles, but... I attempt there's, to. There's, there's about five of them, and I don't... Yeah, they've just put a new one in, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. and I don't think any of them are going anywhere. Like, I don't know if that's just me, but... Because they're supposed to do this. Come up an issue of like the Red Lantern one. 
It's the story where they're all just going, blah, I'm proper angry, I am, bleh, here's some blood, bleh. And that, that's the end of that issue. And it's like, oh, so there's no actual <gasps> story then. Oh. Uh, the, the, the Green Lantern title itself seems to be moving on quite nicely. And Green Lantern Core is a pretty decent read, but that, that's because it's Peter J. Tomasi writing, and he, he writes great space opera. He, I always find him a very underrated writer at Marvel, uh, Marvel at DC. When people think about DC's top writers, they go to Jeff Johns or they go to Grant Morrison or Scott Snyder, as it is now. It's like, no, Peter Tomasi has been cracking out these amazing Green Lantern stories for the past six or seven years. He's doing great things on Batman and Robin. Yeah, he's a damn good writer. He is, which is the one that's got the new Green Lantern in it who's sort of wanted for criminal reasons. I think that's, that's the main Green Lantern title at the moment. I don't like that one very much. I don't, I don't know why. <laughs> it just doesn't really like... I can't really tell you what's happening in most of the Green Lantern comics at the moment because they all just don't seem yeah. to be... They're just sort of fannying about. And it, it is basically, ah, there's this new army that turns you into them. Yeah, What's happening with that? <laughs> well, I thought that's what this crossover was going to be, except it turns out that this crossover, which isn't a crossover at all, is actually a lead into the next crossover. Ugh. Which is, okay, right. Did right. not learn our lesson with Green Lantern crossovers when nobody cared that much about War of the Green Lanterns? <laughs> but then I did read the annual. There was one of the titles put out an annual which had some amazing Scott Collins art in. And I actually felt like a, uh, it had that feel of uh, like an early 90s DC out of space story like like a legion or something like that mm-hmm. and it, it it felt very different from what i've been reading on dc for one it just had that great throwback feel to it and i i enjoyed that quite a lot i surprised myself which oh see this is how bad i am with green lantern titles which was the one that sort of was it was quite a long issue and it was mostly about this whole glimmer net thing where people are the hunted that was the annual i was on about the uh, i okay. think it was I think it's the New Guardians series. Yes, that sounds about right. Uh, but it, it totally it felt so different because mm-hmm. it, it, it actually bothered to set up a, a world that survives more than a passing glance before it starts to fall apart. I don't know, maybe it's just because I'm start, starting to really enjoy pr- good science fiction comics because this past year we've had, obviously we've had Saga. Oh, oh, phenomenal. oh, my word. What Do you know what? So many people have been saying to me, you need to be reading Saga. And I was like, meh, meh, well, you know, I've got so many books and not blah, blah, blah. And then Rich picked it up and he was like, Stace, no, seriously, if you don't read this, you're a prick. So, <laughs> so, so I read the first, I think it was eight issues uh, yeah. in a row. And it was just like, oh, where's the rest of it? I want it now, please. Thank you. And how great is was that one page? <sighs> seventh issue where you open up and there's the giant and you look at you going what those things? oh my god yeah. <laughs> oh holy crap that god, book god. is just stunning it is I, I, was, I had a quick chat with eric stevenson the publisher of image when he was thought i was just saying yeah this is the year i've discovered your company properly it's it's more than just this thing which has survived from the 90s uh, and that happens to publish Walking Dead. This year I've discovered Invincible and Saga and this and that. And and it's just fantastic. I said that, that page of the giant in Saga is possibly the most revolting thing I've ever seen in comics. And it's... <laughs> oh, my word. Although the um, that bounty hunter whose name I've already forgotten, she's terrifying. The, um, oh, the spider woman. Yeah. What is her name now? I want to say it's the void, but it's not. That's going to really bug me. 
she's not in the first issue, is she? I've got no, because first... he's called the Will, isn't he? The other one, the Will, yeah. And she is the. Come on, comicsology. I have this issue. <laughs> the art in that book, though, is so good. I absolutely adore it. Adore it. Yeah, it was a real shame. Uh, you might know, but Fiona Staples uh, was very, very ill over Thought Bubble with some food poisoning. So while she was in Leeds, she didn't actually come out and see anyone and do anything. Which was that was a a real shame, and you know, it, something like that it happens. But yeah, it would have been great to have uh, got my issues signed. But um, going back to what I was saying about science fiction, that there's Storm Dogs, which is a series by David Hine and Doug Braithwaite, which is doing a fantastic job of world building and telling a great story at the same time. So I re- when this Green Lantern book came out, uh, I, I was just looking at it and going, oh god, this is just. Oh, why am I picking this up? And I and I remember, yeah, probably because of the Scott Collins art. And I read it. It was like, actually, this has done its job. This has done a really good job of telling a good story. And I don't and without even touching the crossover, fantastic. I really liked it too. Did you read um, Threshold, The Hunted, that sort of expands on that whole Glimmernet thing? No, I didn't. I didn't pick it up, and I wish I had because uh, it didn't click until I was out of the store and walking somewhere else. It was, hold on, that was a Keith Giffen science fiction comic. Yeah, it was good. It was good. <laughs> you should read that. <laughs> I'm trying to think of other Marvel now stuff because that's what our original point oh, was. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I can't actually remember what else I've read. Well, I'm reading Fantastic Four and FF. You might expect some right, as I do the podcast. A little bit slow to begin, but FF has got Mike Allred on art. Hello. I haven't read FF yet, but I do like Michael Riz, so I'm looking forward to that. I did um, actually, about an hour before we started recording, I did read the first three issues of Fantastic Four, which I liked, but I'm, I feel confused because the first three issues deal with them setting up that spaceship to like travel all the stars with the kids. Yeah. Isn't that already happening somewhere else in another comic, or have I just read things out of order? could be reading out of order um it did it felt like the first two months of both titles basically got them to the end of the initial press release which is the fantastic four are going off into space with their kids and something goes wrong and they don't come back it did seem like we took a long time to get there but there was some great character moments um amazing art mark bagley's art is the best i've seen since his his great heights on ultimate spider-man because he's felt very tired on things like avengers assemble and trinity his dd stuff was not his great greatest stuff at all but uh he's got a new he's got um who's inking him often inks alan davis mark farmer oh, okay <laughs> farmer's inking him and it just it's taken his pencils to a whole new level and it's yeah, i think it's fantastic and yeah mike allred i'll just drool over his comics now i've got ff number one here with a scotty young variant oh scotty young i love that guy he didn't come to thought bubble so sad it makes me sad but um yeah all my Marvel Nows are number ones are Scotty Young variants. <laughs> I can't say as I blame you. Um, now, with <laughs> four, I wonder whether I'm getting confused with the storyline because I recollect them all being in space and I recollect the kids being there as well. And I wonder whether I'm getting confused with the stuff that happened a couple of months ago with that, yeah. turn at, you know, the future of Franklins and Vowels and pe- lots of things happening. Yeah, the, the future were in space when John Hitt was wrapping up his big story involving the various inhumans and galactuses and councils of interdimensional read. <laughs> that was so confusing. Yeah. It was. It got a bit crazy. Yeah. Uh, it kind of holds together, but you've got to read very closely to uh, get the picture. I think it was a bit difficult for me because I just sort of 
I just dove right back into reading Fantastic Four when I haven't been reading it for a long time. And so to sort of dive in basically in the middle of a quite a convoluted storyline is a little bit like, what the fuck? <laughs> it's, you just get you lose your bearings a little bit. <laughs> I think that's everything I'm reading from Marvel now. I tried Instructable Hulk. It was good, but it wasn't good enough to make me go, I've got to drop something else to be able to afford it. I don't really like the Hulk, so I'm not even going to bother with that. Okay. I'm not a big Hulk fan. I did try it more because it was uh, Mark Wade. Uh, there's a, a strong element of trust with him. Mm-hmm. That leads quite nicely into something I was going to review. Uh, I've had a trade of Irredeemable for about two years and not read it. So I thought the other day, fuck it, I'll read this thing. It's been sat there for ages. Okay. And it's uh, it's by Mark Wade, And it's um, basically, in a nutshell, the premise is, what if the world's greatest hero decided to become the world's greatest villain? And it's a guy sort of exceeding Superman levels of power who just turns against humanity and becomes basically the biggest threat the world has ever known. So, or as Mark Miller would put it, what if Batman was a cunt? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Only it's more like what if Superman was a cunt? Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, the, the, to, to put it into perspective, this guy's got like super hearing, the uh, X-ray vision, fire vision, icy breath, super speed, super strength. He's like basically your total badass. And um, the, the, it's immense. For a first trade, it's like it just whacks you in the face with how amazing it is. And it has a totally believable reason for him swapping from heroism to villainous. That's not a word, is it? Villainous, yes, but not in the way you're using it. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, I tried. Um, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's amazing. And basically, if you like good comics, you should read it. <laughs> to put it, you know, in a nutshell. The artwork's by Peter Krause, who I, d- I don't know that I've ever come across before. It's, yeah. It's good. I like it. Um, it works for the comic anyway. It's not too... Because the, the comic itself is a little bit, you know, a little bit dark and grim. So it's nice that the, the artwork isn't all like, oh, hello, look how cute this is. I did look at the big, lovely eyes. and oh, It's a little bit sort of like, oh, yeah, this, this guy can kill you when you sleep. <laughs> Actually, it'll kill you when you're awake. It doesn't really matter because he's <laughs> such a badass. But yeah, I definitely recommend that to anybody who likes to read things. Cool. <laughs> Was there anything else that you wanted to talk about? Uh, I've got to talk about my film, got to talk about some comics. Uh, what else we got on your list? I've got, I got a couple of things. I'm going to try and be quick about two of them because one's a rant and the other one I don't okay. want to spoil. So I'll do the rant quickly. Okay. I stopped watching The Big Bang Theory. The latest episode that was on was called The Bakersfield Expedition, and I gave up before even seeing the end. I've been struggling with this for a while because over the course of the past few series, it seemed to stop being jokes for nerds and being more jokes about nerds and laughing at nerds. Um, and the female characters in it have always pissed me off. I think Penny is a terrible character because all she ever does, she's quite vacuous and a bit stupid. And... Every time anything goes even slightly wrong in her life, she gets pissed off her face, which is a terrible thing to show in a TV show, I think. Um, I I really don't like Penny. I find Amy too much of a Sheldon with tits that it's too distracting. You wouldn't... No. No, just no. Bernadette is one of the most annoying people I've ever come across in my life. But this last episode, basically, the boys are going to a convention 
except they decide to do a detour and go and have some photos taken in front of, I can't remember the name of them, but it's this rock formation that apparently appears in a lot of episodes of Star Trek. Oh, yeah, the the slightly slanty ones. That's the ones, yeah. Where um, Kirk and the Gorn fought um, in the arena episode, and they yeah. formed the backdrop to the Vulcan City in Star Trek the movie from a couple of years back. Indeed. Amongst other things. You are. Jim Carrey went and had a fight there, I think, in The Cable Guy. Oh, do you know, I can't remember that film. I've seen it, like, yonks ago. I should watch that again. Anyway, they... uh, Now, this is the part where I stopped watching this. So uh, the rest of what happens in that episode is is stuff that I've read on Wikipedia just to find out what happened. They do this detour. They get dressed up in their full Star Trek outfits that they were going to go to this con in, and their car gets nicked. So the rest of that side of the story is people just sort of laughing at their misfortune like aha your car's been nicked aha you're such a massive nerd look at your outfit which seems pretty shitty the other half of the story is the girls decide that it's about time they all tried to read a comic because it's such a big part of their boyfriend's lives that it's something they feel they should at least try and be interested in so they go to the comic shop and this is the instant where we turned it off. All the people in the comic shop just swiveled round and stared at them. And I'm pretty sure one of them drooled a little bit. And it was just like, no, fuck it. No, we are not going to continue to reinforce this stereotype that a woman cannot walk into a comic shop without getting ogled by crazy, dirty men who live in their mom's basements. That's not how it works anymore. <sighs> Occasionally you'll get one creepy weirdo who happens to be there at the same time who might Mm. give you a bit of a stare but nine times out of ten when i go into my comic shop not only are there females working there but there's often girls there as well actually buying comics for themselves so i turned it off there i went online afterwards to find out what happened because i was a bit mad at myself for turning it off and uh, long story short the owner of the comic shop tells them to buy fables because he thinks they would like that and that's a genuinely good recommendation because it's female friendly without being all like it's all about fluffy bunnies and hello kitty and it's so cute but they go no do you know what let's read thor because this guy's fit which is again like not on the one hand i'm annoyed by that because it just makes them all seem really shallow but on the other hand i quite like it because people are always banging on about the over sexualization of women in comics so it's kind of nice to prove the point that it's not just the women <laughs> But yeah, like I've just given up on liking that show now. I can't get behind something that has such just genuinely horrible females in it. And it's just pointing and laughing at nerds now. And even Sheldon's occasional silliness cannot save it for me anymore. So I've given up. That's the end of that. There's my little rant on that. And uh, the other thing that I don't want to talk about too much, even though I ended up talking about the Big Bang Theory quite a lot, was uh, the very last issue of Sweet Tooth. Did you read that? I I have read it. It was it was good. It was good. I don't want to say too much more about it, except to say that I think if I ever met Jeff Lemire, I might just dry hump his leg until it fell off. <laughs> Um, no, that would be, you could just claim that was an interesting dance on the uh, dance floor. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he is, like, as far as I'm concerned, totally top tits. And, uh, and if any books appear that happen to have his name attached to them, I'm likely to give them a try. I have added Constantine to my pull list because he's <gasps> writing it. Do you know what? I was really. And I shouldn't be. I was really nervous about Constantine because Hellblazer is, like, the only comic that 
I've ever continuously bought. Like, there's never yeah. been a time when I've gone, now I can't read this anymore. So, and I was, when they announced that they were going to get rid of that and bring in Constantine in the universe of DC 52, I was really panicking because I thought, it's not going to be the same. It's not going to be, I'm going to give it the benefit of the doubt, of course. But as soon as I found out he was on board, I was like, oh, yeah, that's fine. I can do that. <laughs> now it's extra on my list. But Sweet Tooth, I was a bit sort of, I was happy and sad to read the last issue simply because it was an absolutely amazing last issue and it's nice to have a conclusion to a comic series that's everything's all wrapped up and it yeah it's not necessarily like twee and everything's perfect and whatever but it's not it all all your questions become answered and everything's just it's done and you can just put it down and and put it to one side and go right I've done that now fair enough the, the story of Sweet Tooth across the 40 issues is, is surprisingly straightforward and linear. It's not necessarily told in a straightforward and linear way, but it, it's very focused. It, it's not constantly branching off into subplots and let's go follow this character around and stuff like that. So by keeping it that focused, it, it was able to have a very strong ending. Um, the only, the only, I guess, criticism I have is it, it pulls a, it pulled a trick that a lot of Vertigo series seem to do when they come to the end is go, all right, let's jump to when this character's old and forty years have passed and we can see how the world has changed. Yeah, because that's exactly how Why the Last Man finished. See, I haven't. I've just started reading Why the Last Man. Um, Oops. That's okay. I uh, I kind of assumed that would be the sort of thing. That, that's that's not the major spoiler about the end of the series. If I ever caught myself spoiling that for someone, I'd probably kill myself because <laughs> ha- it has to be read. And if you've read Why the Last Man, then I'm talking about the end of the anti-penultimate issue. Oh, okay. okay. I'm going to have to start like really getting on with that now, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> it's only, what, 60 issues? <clears throat> 60 issues, 10 trades. Oh. I should know I carried all 10 around Thought Bubble to get them signed. <laughs> Why don't you just do the first one, dude? That's what I do. I just pick out the first one. <laughs> they're incredibly light because they're not. They're printed on. It's not bad quality paper. It's not like heavy, glossy paper. So it it they were very light to carry. Oh, anyway. Um. Anyway, yeah, Sweet Tooth. I really I really enjoyed it, and I'm a bit I'm sad to see it go, but at the same time I'm glad that it managed to finish what it started because a lot of things get sort of ended prematurely. I'm really worried about Jeff Lemire now simply because I went through this sort of level of uh, absolutely loving about Paul Cornell and then yes. and then I, re- I started like, sort of basically picking up everything he wrote and then realising actually it might have been a little bit more to do with the characters in the other things because I didn't really like well, a lot of other stuff that he wrote um, so I'm scared that this is going to happen with Jeff Lemire but- It's interesting you mentioned Paul Cornell because obviously he's he's just had his Vertigo series cancelled um, yeah, which is Saucer kind um, except that whilst there are a lot of people going, oh, that's a terrible shame. I've been a Paul Cornell fan for like 20 years. I, I, my first ever Doctor Who novel that wasn't a novelisation of the TV series was his first ever professionally published work, which was a book called Time Worm Revelation, which was phenomenal. It completely changed the game of how you look at Doctor Who and, and set the tone for so much it, that happened for the Doctor during the time when he was off air. But Saucer Country, I thought, had a great first six issues. Then there were two issues of lecturing, and then I couldn't care less. See, I didn't even get six issues into that. I think it was about four, and I just thought, oh, no, I'm bored of it now. 
And I wasn't surprised when I saw it got cancelled because obviously he's gone to Marvel. He's going to be writing Wolverine. And whilst exclusive creator contracts are certainly not in vogue anymore, it wouldn't surprise me if we see him working for Marvel exclusively for a while. Because mm-hmm. obviously he's, uh, he's off Demon Knights as well. Yeah. I um, I didn't really get along with Demon Knights either, but then again, I hate Etrigan. So, you know. <laughs> this is what I mean about characters, you see. I think yeah. any, anybody could have been writing Demon Knights and I wouldn't really have got along with it because I just <laughs> don't really like any of the characters. But yeah, Fair keeping my fingers crossed that Jeff Lemire just keeps writing things about characters that I like. <laughs> so if you ever like, if it's ever announced that he's going to start writing something like, I don't know, with like Valkyrie in it, I'll be like, ah, oh, fuck. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh, tits. Um, he writes series to Marvel with the word fearless and he's like, nope, I'm out. I'm gone. <laughs> gone. Bye. Um, the last uh, thing that I wanted to mention, uh, and I am so late to this party, it's almost stupid, is um, I saw Judge Dredd, didn't I? Saw Judge Dredd. Um, I didn't get to see it when it came out of the cinema for the simple fact that I can't do 3D. I've mentioned it before, but to any new listeners, it's basically because I've got overly large, almost comedically nerdy glasses myself. And if I put a pair of 3D glasses over the top of them, it hurts the fuck out of my whole face. (laughs) I just can't do... And I can't take my own glasses off because then obviously I can't see the film. (laughs) And the only 2D showing of... Judge Dredd was happening uh, in the middle of the week in Wolverhampton, which isn't particularly close to where Rich and I live. It just happens to be, it's like a 45 minute bus ride away, which is a bit ridiculous, uh, on a Tuesday at like one in the afternoon. And we were like, well, I can't really take a day off work to go to the cinema. (laughs) So we didn't. But I've seen it now and I'm quite miffed that I didn't get to see it at the cinema because it's fucking good. It's really fucking good. Um, I uh, I went and bought it on its day of release. I walked into my HMV and thought, oh, I know, I'll give them a little bit of money. I want it now. <laughs> and I walked out and like six hours later, it was announced they were going under. Oh, God. I um, I felt really, do you know, momentarily I felt bad for HMV because I know a few people that work for them. And, I was, and plus, I used to work at Music Zone, so I know what it's like to suddenly realise that you're probably not going to have a job very soon. But on the other hand, they've not done well at uh, business for a long time because even when I've been given HMV vouchers for my birthday and Christmas I've been reluctant to spend them because every time I've gone in the shop I've thought no I can get that on Amazon for £10 cheaper I can get that on Amazon for £5 cheaper I can get that and I, I like I'm like I've got a voucher why don't I want to spend it and that's probably where they're falling down a little bit oops but um yeah no we've we've we got Judge Dredd and um I'm like I want to be more into 2000 AD, but it's one of those it's one of those things where I just do not know where to start. And people have lent me trades and things in the past, and I've never particularly gelled with them. Um, I think my friend the Hod lent me the Ballad of Halo Jones, which is <laughs> it's pretty much the one that everybody goes, "Oh my God, that's the tits," and I didn't really like it. So I I don't know. I just haven't really tried very well with 2000 AD but now I think I should try harder because the film is really good and by all accounts you know the progs and stuff are really good so maybe I should just Mm. give it a go I started reading 2000 AD this past year a big part of that just by listening to the reviews that were given to me almost weekly on the Momcast 
Um, so Prog 1800 came along and it was a starting point for everything. So I thought, yeah, I'll get the subscription. And then suddenly it turns out it's not just normal Progs. It's this amazing trifecta storyline that culminated in one issue long storyline written by that was just superb. I've been really enjoying it. And the great thing, because it's an anthology, if you don't like one story, that's great. There's three others in there that you're more likely to click with. But yeah, Dread itself, I was, I was really impressed with that. It deserved to have taken a hell of a lot more than it did. It deserved to have been seen by a lot more people than it did. But what I can understand is that the Lionsgate, who were the distributors, just didn't know what to do with it. They didn't know how to give it uh, uh, an audience outside of people who knew who Judge, what Judge Dredd was. I don't think it helped that the limited 2D release as well. Yeah. I really think um, you need to give people the option. <laughs> And that was the one thing when I heard, oh, it's going to be in 3D. I thought, why? Why, 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 why? Make just uh, By all accounts, people who saw it in 3D said that the use of 3D was a, a really valid artistic choice. It wasn't just about, you know, oh, let's convert Thor into 3D and charge everyone an extra three quid to go see it. And it doesn't add anything. This, it was used properly. Mm. But, yeah, it, it was good. It was really good. Uh, yeah, I really enjoyed it. Although the I, disc was disappointing because in America, if you bought it on DVD, you would get documentaries about the history of 2000 AD and the history of Judge Dredd in comics. And what we got on the British version was oh, some crappy talking heads about the film. Well, that's silly. Yeah. I hate things like that. I don't understand why you think that different countries would want different extras. Surely we all want to see as much as we can. <laughs> Is that just me? I don't know. No, I'm just completely it. I love a DVD that comes with uh, lots of extras. Yeah, me too. Me too. I've got to say, my uh, my one th- my one negative about uh, Judge Dredd the film is that I wasn't impressed with uh, Urban's uh, throne. Like that sounds like a really pathetic thing because I don't know whether it's because I associate the lower half of Judge Dredd's face to look almost exactly like. Sylvester Stallone's face <laughs> <laughs> that um, that I really struggled with the fact that it just looked like he was a man pulling a bit of a silly face for the whole time and I was like oh you don't nearly look mad enough mate like, I don't know if that was just me like he just didn't look sort of hard and grisly enough for me maybe that's me just being fake but I did very much enjoy the film because I was a bit concerned when I saw the trailer about all the slow-mo stuff to do with the drug because I'm just not a huge fan of slow motion. But in this, it really worked. It, it, it was there to enhance the story. It wasn't just there for the sake of going, look what we yeah. can do with our fancy cameras and editing. Ooh. And that, that's um, the bits where they used the 3D. It was only used for the slow-mo bits. Yeah, I can imagine some of that looked amazing in 3D. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it was that, that last shot of Mama. Oh. And, she's, and then, oh, you actually see her go... That, that was, fell, yeah. fell, absolutely fell. Um, I, I mentioned earlier the Prince Charles Cinema. They they're doing this season of program at the moment called Movie Mathematics, and one I want to go to is the way they. It's basically RoboCop plus the raid equals dread, and that's pretty much what it was. It, it had that great sensibility of RoboCop. This sort of that you don't get in films anymore. This real grim and gritty futuristic thing where you've got a guy in a shiny uniform and this big ass gun doing crazy stuff, and yeah, it. it it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I liked the fact as well that it, it totally relied on the action and the plot because the setting was just one place. It wasn't all over the place and it wasn't all over a timeline. It was just, we are here in this building. We're going to blow things up. 
stuff's going to happen in slow-mo. It's just going to be awesome. And I was just kind of like, yeah, this is this is pretty damn good. <laughs> I also like those little shots you got of the mega city. And it looked like a real place. It did, yeah, because I, um, I was a bit concerned that it would look a bit ridiculous. I suppose you have to sort of... You have to know going into it that this is some sort of horrible dystopian future where everything's a little bit shit. Because <laughs> if you didn't know that going in, you'd probably be like, the fuck is this sort of massive block of flats weirdness about? And you'd just get a bit marginally confused. But yeah, I think that's enough of me singing praises about Judge Dread now. But I do think that I need to try and read some Dread if people want to throw some Dread at me so that I can read it for free and I don't have to buy things myself. Or wait until September for my birthday. That would be great. <laughs> Oh, I love a bit of fishing. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about before we go? No, I, th- I think we've we've had a, a good old meander through. I, I've I've been once you back's been turned, I've nicked a couple of cakes from the plate. Oh, and had a nibble. Was, it wasn't the Battenberg, was it? I'm afraid so. <gasps> That's my favourite. And now I must gaze into the fist of Stace. <laughs> Stock. Oh, mm. I love the sound effects in comics for uh, punches and things. Yeah. I still think the greatest sound effect ever is snicked, though. Snicked. Oh, no, I, I, I'd argue that the, the greatest one was when Captain America threw his shield oh. in the 70s and it went, wank! I command you to wank! That's the, it's the line before it, isn't it? I command you to and then wank. I don't oh, know what the rest of that sentence was. Yeah. Because um, I'm sure he must have commanded him to do something other than wank. Yeah. <laughs> He's pretty good. <laughs> Oh, God. One day, I really want to get a hold of some, like, really old... I want some of the old Superman comics where he just seems like a douchebag. They look so funny. Crap from the 50s, yeah. Yeah. That supermanisadick.com is so funny. Super dickery, yeah. Love it. Love it. He's a dick. Anyway, that's not the point. Is there anything that you would like to plug before wishing... Um just really my own stuff. The Fantastic Cast every couple of weeks over at ffcast.libsyn.com. Great fun for me to do with Andrew. I think that fun comes across in the show. Uh, we, if you know your Fantastic Four, we're just uh, at the end of the 20s, uh, moving into the 30s. So we're gearing up for things like this, uh, the uh, fierce... No, not fearsome. The Frightful Four, then move into the Inhumans. We'll be covering Galactus in about six months' time. So great <laughs> stuff. And I can also be, if, you, if you're if you on Twitter, I can be found um, at QuizLacey, Q-U-I-Z-L-A-C-E-Y. Splendid. I suppose that's a, a good a, a time as any as to plug myself on the old Twitters. Not long ago, I passed my uh, 10,000th tweet, which just Ooh. goes to show how sad I am. Um, <laughs> but you can find me on Twitter at uh, StaceBobT. That's a capital S and a capital T. Also, if you want to drop me an email, I'm at StaceysParlor at gmail.com. If you'd like to volunteer to come on the show, I have got a list of peoples, but obviously sometimes schedulings and conflicting timetables and whatnot mean that I could always do with a longer list so that I've got backup. <laughs> so if you want to be on the show, just drop me a drop me a tweet or an email. And I guess I'll see you next month for my super special first birthday episode. Ooh, Ta-da. special cake. Yeah, special cake. I'm going to have uh, a massive cake and it's going to be covered in chocolate and nobody else is going to eat any of it. It's just going to be me. I'm going to get it all over my face and then I'm going to be sick in the middle of the podcast. That's how it's going to so happen. Basically, the podcast is going to be you, a fork, a massive cake, and all we're here is the occasional and the occasional belch. And then occasionally, oh, too much cake. <laughs>
No, I, I have got things planned, but I don't want to say what they are just yet in case they all fall through and it just ends up being a regular episode. <laughs> and, and it's always great to have a surprise. Exactly. But hopefully exciting things will happen in episode 13. Fingers crossed, eh? So, yeah, I'll see you next month, guys. Bye. Bye.